Hi, everyone. This is Shannon, co-host of Terror Talk Podcast. I wanted to speak to you guys directly about where you can get more content from us. You can become a part of our superfan membership. For the month of December, <laughs> I will be adding daily Patreon-only content. Do not ask me how I'm going to do this. <laughs> it's a huge undertaking. But for the month of December, every day in December, I'm going to upload something new. So join us and become a part of our creative community on Patreon so we can get started on something new together. Just go to patreon.com and join us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hello. It's exciting. Today... On the show, we are going to talk about the Black Dahlia, but more specifically, we're going to break this up into, lightly, into three parts, but you never know, we might get off onto something else, is we're going to discuss the LAPD at that time, so this is the 1940s, because uh, as you will hear Kathy talk about, it's a very important part of the story, just sort of how they functioned at the time. We're also going to discuss um, briefly the victim, because... She ends up not being a part of the chaos of the story, but she is obviously important to it and uh, was um, lost her life as a part of this. And then also we're going to talk a little bit about the main suspect, etc. So where would you like to start, Miss Kathy? Uh, well, I'll start with, uh, I will start with the LAPD stuff, but also just, um, you know, this case is, notorious it's it's one of the most if not the most notorious murder uh in los angeles that's ever occurred wow. and it came after it, it came after the the zodiac killing spree in san francisco so after the zodiac killer shooting spree in san francisco it's notably one of the most brutal murders in american history and one of the most famous unsolved crimes. Mm -hmm. So although we have a pretty decent idea at this point who that the, the prime suspect that they have for this case very much fits everything, they never solved it. Right. And so to just sort I'm just going to sort of paint a canvas for everybody. If, if you're unfamiliar, I'll describe her in a moment. But I want to give some atmosphere to the time. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at LAPD in the 40s. Well, we'll even bleed it into the 50s where it was a very, very, very corrupt institution for a, a number of reasons. And we know that we, we still talk about law enforcement as a corrupt institution. This is, this is very specific to this time, though. We had... Um, you know, and this is before social media and internet. So much of this was unknown. Uh, now things are much more blatant. So we have high ranking corruption going on. And these are people who are colluding with politicians, gangs. There's a hidden world of what are called pleasure girls. Okay. So these, they, they live a very privileged life underneath all this dirt and having a lot of power in in the community. Smart, Elizabeth Smart, or Short, excuse me, Elizabeth Short, um, who is the Black Dahlia, she was portrayed by the LAPD and other people who described her at that time as a prostitute, a wild-ass lesbian was another way that they described her, 
um, both of these to be found untrue. But this is this is this world of pleasure girls. She was part of and brought into, and these were women who were often objectified and bought and used by people in law enforcement at that time, among others, politicians. We'll talk a little bit about Hollywood as well. I want to recommend a book if you're interested in this time. Uh, I read this book years ago and it's fascinating, uh, but it's called L.A. Noir. And it's mid-century Los Angeles, a city sold to the world as the white spot of America, a land of sunshine and orange groves, wholesome Midwestern values and Hollywood stars protected by the world's most famous police force, the Dragnet era LAPD. Um, Behind this public image lies a hidden world of pleasure girls and crooked cops, ruthless newspaper tycoons, corrupt politicians, and East Coast gangsters on the make. Into this underworld came two men, one LA's most notorious gangster, the other is the most famous police chief, each prepared to battle the other for the soul of the city. So I'm not going to go into so much depth, but it's a book by John um, Bunton or Bunton. And I read it years ago and it really goes in and it's a double entendre because it, the noir piece speaks to uh, the corruption, but also speaks to the time where LA smog was so bad that there were days that it actually looked like it was night outside. Um, and now if you, if you live here now, it, it's interesting to even hear people talk about LA smog. We don't really yeah, talk about I, it as I mean, much I anymore. don't, yeah, no, we don't, which is interesting. Yeah. So, um, really, really good book about it, you know, otherwise known as mob city. So, mm-hmm. so she was in, in this, she moved from a small town. She was, uh, she ends up going into the entertainment industry. She's 22 years old. She's aspiring actor. She moves here to live with her dad. She, yes, mm-hmm. that's right. Um, and her case becomes really highly publicized because of the nature of it. So, mm-hmm. and there's all these different ties to it. So she, she ends up being found by a woman in um, the Lemert Park neighborhood of Los Angeles, California, one morning. Um, and she is one of one of the reasons why it was such a bizarre um, and and gruesome death was the way that her body was found, and she was bisected at the waist, so her torso was actually removed from her legs. And then there was an incision that was cut from her jawline. Like it literally cut straight through her mouth and cut through the muscles of her mouth. And if you look at, um, you can look up the autopsy photos and it's really, really disturbing. Um, so her corpse was totally mutilated, but it was done with such surgical precision there was no blood at the scene, which means that she was probably moved there. Um, the woman who found her actually thought she was a mannequin because of how she was lying there. And so um, Short's killer had drained her corpse of blood and actually scrubbed it clean. Yeah. So, I mean, let's just pause there for a second. <laughs> Shall we? <laughs> it's what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear something like that? Um, serial killer. Mm-hmm. is the first thing that comes to mind for me mm-hmm. because of the ritual of that. And she had like tic-tac-toe on her hip yep. carved into her hip and she's cut in half and she's got the Joker cut mouth and she's been drained of blood. And another thing that comes to mind because serial killer comes to mind is that he spent, he or she spent a lot of time with the corpse creating it that way. And then it happened somewhere else because it was drained of blood and there was no blood at the scene. 
Exactly. So like you said, there's a ritual around it, but it's also somebody who has like it, it was so such precision. Um, he knew what he was doing. It wasn't messy and it was done in such a way that it was probably somebody who studied in med school is what they assumed from just how almost, I know it sounds funny to describe it this way, but how perfect it was. Right. And, um, it was important to him. It was very important to him. So I just want to also note that this is during post-war Hollywood and pretty faces were a dime a dozen. So she comes to be, you know, she, her dream is to become this big star, but this was a time where women were just kind of, there were a dime a dozen. And so she ends up taking odd jobs and getting involved with people that were probably very dangerous mm-hmm. um, and showing up to parties and things just to now like what, how they describe, you know, the casting couch thing, you know, who she was, she need? Yeah. To she was trying to be connected. Mm-hmm. She was exactly. trying to get in without a connection. So the corruption in Hollywood mixed with the LAPD stuff and the high profile stuff will, this will all come together. Um, there's a man by the name of Steve Hodel. I don't know if it's Hodel or Hodel. Mm-hmm. They pronounced it two different ways in videos that I was watching. So this man, who's now a retired LAPD detective, he is under the, well, not only the assumption, he's quite convinced actually that his father was the man who murdered Elizabeth Short. We still don't know to this day, but he, he found, sorry, let, let's just go this way. He was an LAPD detective that spent the last 15 years cataloging evidence that his father was actually the killer. Mm. Okay. Um, This would have made Steve five years old at the time of the crime. Steve also had a sister who I'll talk a little bit about the way she described their father. But after his father's death, Steve was going through belongings and he found himself going through a lot of pictures and he fell on this photo album that he had tucked away in a box, uh, just towards the back. Mm -hmm. And there were two pictures in this of a young woman and her eyes were cast downward and she had this curly deep black hair Mm. and he took a step back and he just kind of closed his eyes and and imagine, you know, he's been an LAPD detective. This was his job. And now he comes across this and he says, his first thought was my God, that looks like the black Dahlia. So he had a forensic artist take a look at it and they said that it was a 90 to 95% probability for a match that it was her. Now there's some inconsistency in the story because I've looked at other pieces that said um, that it wasn't a match at all. So I think it just depends on where where you look. So he starts to catalog evidence obsessively over 15 years. This now becomes like his life. He's retired. So he's on this quest to connect his father to Smart's murder, and it started to consume his life. And there's so much irony behind this, being that he's a homicide, he was a homicide detective. So the interesting part of this is that he is not the first to claim that he solved the murder, and he's not the first to claim that one of his parents was the killer, Hmm. which I think is interesting. That is interesting. Um, But it was his, his cache of evidence 
um, showed his father topped the LAPD's list of suspects at that time of the crime, which moved Steve's accusations all the way to the top of the list. Um, so the, his thought is you haven't been able to prove that it's not my father. Right. Right. So other people, it's been disproved. It hasn't been proven that it's his father, but it hasn't been disproven. So, um, it's the only investigation that warranted an official acknowledgement from the DA's office. Yeah, they couldn't dismiss it. Like, they right. couldn't um, rule it out is what I'm thinking. Like, they ruled out others. Exactly. Okay. So so George uh, starts to talk about what his father's house looked like at the time. Did you, did you see anything on this? No. Okay. So this is really crazy. So his house almost looked like a fortress. Oh, wow. Um, and George, the father had a room in the house that the children couldn't go into. So this was always, as, as kids, they just thought dad kept, mm-hmm. you know, really delicate or sensitive or expensive things in there. Right. Um, or trophies. <laughs> or trophies. X, Y, Z. Okay. So to, to give you a background too, Steve had done over 300 murder investigations in his career. So he was very adept. Mm-hmm. at doing this. Um, so kind of bringing this now back to the, the old Hollywood, this man, George was re- he spent a lot of time in the scene. He was a doctor and he actually ran the, the venereal disease clinic in Los Angeles. Okay. So imagine, yeah. Yeah, and he's working in Hollywood. He probably had a lot of these actors and directors as patients. Yes, he probably did. Because this was a time where, you know, people weren't using protection. Promiscuous. George, it's a promiscuous industry. Promiscuous industry. George had an IQ of 186. So if smart people don't know what that means, that is, he's genius. Hi. <laughs> um, he was a musical prodigy. I think is interesting. And he studied uh, surgery in med school. So we know how her body was found. Mm -hmm. All kind of adds up. Here's another little red flag for you, Shan. (laughs) He had 11 children from five different women. Wow. So he was not faithful, clearly. And um, he... Oh, so he was married that whole time when he was having kids with other people? I believe he was because mm. I think that the the mother left eventually. I, I didn't get all of that backstory, but yeah, he 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 got around. Okay. Um so he was also very good friends with John Houston. I think this is really interesting too cuz John Houston is, you know, so credible for so many things. Yeah. Steve's sister at the time um started to talk about the fact that she was actually sexually molested by George growing up. And so when she became an adult and spoke out about it, the police shut it down right away. The courts shut it down right away. She also said that John Houston tried to rape her when she was at a party as a teenager at the home. So the reason why I'm sharing this with you is really setting up this. This is a guy who had, Orgies at his home. His daughter was there. Apparently, he had hired a photographer to take just very promiscuous photos of his own own daughter and hoard her off mm. to these actors. So there's a family photographer who, t- who took nude photos of the sister 
um, when she was 12 years old. George was put on trial after being accused of putting his 14-year-old daughter up for auction. Um, oh, he was tried for that. He was tried for it, but they there was nothing found. Okay. Um, they, they acquitted him due to his clout with the city. Sure. So what was the most interesting part of this, and this is what Steve and his sister talk about, is that all of a sudden he was at the top of the list for being the number one suspect. And then all of a sudden it abruptly ended. And the case was closed by 1950, despite the fact that there was further evidence that he hit the, he fit the profile. Mm. So, you know, clearly he paid off the DA office to get rid of it. Steve recognizes his father's handwriting on one of the letters to the police the sister does as well. Um, there's just so much here that it's this guy, but he ended up being able to live his entire life, never being arrested for this, um, tied in with all of this corruption. And just, you know, this this woman died a, a victim. Uh, her family never got peace for it. And they assume to this day that this is this is our guy. Yeah, it's a really... Very sad story. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had moved here to live with her father, who she didn't have a great relationship with. He was an alcoholic from the reports. Um, he then kicked her out, and she went and lived in a... She was living in um, a very new friend's place for like a month when she was found um, murdered. And then... The police, this is the story anyway, the police went to her father's home, which is, they realized that was the closest relative. And, you know, he was wasted Mm -hmm. and, you know, denied caring, et cetera, so much so that they had to call her mom and find and have the mom fly out and claim her body and, and, and deal with the aftermath of her murder. And it's just so tragic. It's really, really tragic. But I'm also struck by, you know, at this time, so the murder happened in, what, January of 1947, and we were in the thick of, well, I mean, noir films went from, you know, the 20s to the 50s, but there are so many excellent, like, true, um, not true, um, crime LA crime noir films, you know, double indemnity and the big sleep and all these different crime films that were sunset Boulevard, et cetera, that were from that time. And it just makes me reflect on what you were saying about, you know, the police at that time and the corruption and the power, because if you, you know, we're not going to go through every detail of, of every, um, of every moment of the case, there are plenty of, you know, true crime podcasts and documentaries and shows to do that. But if you do that, like if you go down that rabbit hole, there's just so much corruption every single step of the way. And then it sounds like this guy, even though we don't know for sure, had the money and the clout to get himself out. To get himself out. And how many millions of times have we seen that since then? And we so. had, exactly, it still plays out today, yeah. right? So they they actually sent search dogs to his home after being, you know, all the way at the top of this list. And the dogs ended up smelling remains. Uh, and they believe that um, 
Actually, no, I apologize. Let me go back. They sent search dogs out years later um, and they found remains at the home because it was Steve who had called a search when he thought it was his father. And what ends up happening is they, they now think that Elizabeth was one of many buried there. And uh, they also know that a very similar car to what George drove was at the scene of the crime. So there's so much pointing to him and how easy it was for him to just get out of that. Yeah. I mean, when you, so if we look at it as if it was this guy, hypothetically, are you looking at like from a forensic psychological perspective, are you looking at someone who is hypothetically a serial killer with ritualistic behavior um, psychopathic, narcissistic. I mean, what do you what do you think about when you look at this guy? I think it's it's hard. He's almost like this this hybrid because he has the the narcissism, whether it's situational or not, due to his clout with Hollywood, with the police department. You know, is this something that he knew he could just get away with? Um, it, it clearly wasn't opportunistic. I mean, these were organized in the sense that he had parties. He found his victims. He was selective. He had a type. Well, and he must have had a place because what he did to the bodies denoted that he needed a, a private place to right. do those things to the body. And then the availability of a way to put the body where it ended up. Now, we don't know. You know, they're assuming that she's one of a few. So we don't know we don't. if these other women looked like this or was it just her? Yeah, we don't. I mean, because one of the other, I mean, there were a lot of suspects in this mm -hmm. uh, initially that, yeah. like you said, they ruled out. And then there's also the theory that it was, you know, the Cleveland torso killer was yeah. one of the, also the big theories because that particular serial killer would slice the bodies in half or, and you'd find one piece here and one piece there or what have you. So there's a lot of theories, but. So Tamar, who's the daughter, yeah, Steve's sister, she ended up um, befriending Michelle Phillips, who was uh, from the mamas and the papas. And they interview Michelle on 48 hours. And she says that when she met George, she she felt an automatic chill when she looked in his eyes. She said she, she met him knowing that Tamar had likely told her everything. And she said, looking at him that day, the feeling she got was, I'm pretty sure he wanted to kill me. So there was an essence of, there was something about him that, you know, when we talk about sociopaths and almost like being a, a blackness in their eyes or like a, she experienced just a, an intense reaction to his energy and his presence that really scared her. Which I know I have felt and I know you have felt and I know that like anecdotally nine times out of 10, cause you can't say everyone because some psychopaths are extremely, they're just a, a level above and can mimic even past any of our radar. Um, so we're not saying we're, magical detectors, but maybe just more than the average bear in some ways. But um, that feeling is very visceral. So when you described it, I can understand how she would think like, 
that that was proof in some ways, you know, mm-hmm. not, not that it is. I'm no, just it's saying not. That, that, yeah. that, that feeling, I understand, I understand that visceral feeling yeah. and how potent it is. And so I, I, I do understand how it can be like one of 10 factors in believing you, you're right. Yep. You know? Well, and even if he, he wasn't the murderer of, could have been others. But, well, yeah. also, but also he still was responsible for, yeah, the prostitution and, and molesting his own daughter who was friends with Michelle. Right. So he's still a very, very bad man. Right. Whether he did this. We don't know. We don't know. We know that um, Steve has compared handwriting to the letters and that matches up. Um, I don't know if they did a, had a forensic analyst on the handwriting or not, but 48 hours has a, from uh, August 11th, 2020, 48 hours did a good interview with Steve Some people are really critical of Steve, though, because they believe that his investigation was almost like, like not sensationalized it, but he was almost obsessed with his father's guilt. Yeah, I I, they so some people have an aversive reaction to Steve. Um, The fine line between obsession and admiration is what this article. Well, and that might actually be very true. I mean, that that's okay in the sense that. He's a flawed person too, maybe. So, well, and imagine, imagine, I mean, I would probably get obsessed if I found it was my father. This is, by the way, the information about Steve came from an article called I Know Who Killed the Black Dahlia from The Guardian, May 26, 2016. You can find online. Yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah. Um, I also want to mention that the guy who wrote uh, LA Confidential, Mm -hmm. um, James Elroy, He's a charismatic, he's an odd individual. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wrote a great movie, LA Confidential, you know, 1997 um, noir. So we don't have a, uh, in my opinion, we don't have a ton of neo-noir crime films that are great past the 40s. <laughs> so, but I think LA Confidential is one of them. And um, he, uh, James Elroy, actually has, I believe it's a BBC episode that's the best one, but he's been on a lot of different things. You can probably um, YouTube that. But there's an episode where he talks about the Black Dahlia because he did a lot of research on that uh, in the context of talking about how his own mother was murdered. And that's how mm. he, that's how he wrote, that's kind of the, that's the inspiration for LA Confidential was him going down the rabbit hole of trying to solve his own mother's murder. And the episode is really interesting in that sense, because it's, it's part, it's part him going to like his mother's murder site and talking about how that has affected him throughout his life and, and going down a rabbit hole of trying to find his mother's murder. And then also, um, then they address the Black Dahlia and that as inspiration as well for his writing, that flick. And it's a good one too. And plus he's just a super strange dude. <laughs> and so he makes a good subject for things. But I would mention that as well. And then, um, go ahead. I don't know if you were. No, I, I mean, I was just still in sort of in the same yeah, same thing with just the corruption and the stuff that was going on at that time. Mm-hmm. But um, go ahead. No, I was just going to mention that there are, you know, quite a few. Oh, oh let's talk just briefly. Um, 
you mentioned that the Black Dahlia film from 2006 is really bad. Oh, the, the Brian De Palma? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> FYI, Elizabeth Short's uh, murder investigation is part of that movie. It's got like Josh Hartnett and Aaron Eckert and Scarlett it's, Johansson. It's mostly about the detectives. And Hilary Swank. Yeah. Hilary Swank was so incredibly annoying in that role mm. with her 1940s Hollywood accent. Oh, and no. I, I think it was... Oh no. I'm not sure if she was supposed to, it was intentionally over the top. Oh. I I, genu- maybe. I I generally like her in things. I wanted to just fast forward every time she was on screen. Maybe they were attempting that 1940s kind of it's, style. Yeah, it, it but her, it was something about how she did it, how okay. she played it. Mm-hmm. It was bad. <laughs> Fair. How do you feel about it? It was bad. <laughs> I know. And then they I concentrated know. a lot more on um Eckert's and Hartnett's relationship as detectives and, and their love triangle with Scarlett Johansson, who Scarlett Johansson plays the ex of a mob guy mm-hmm. who they're also investigating and don't know mm-hmm. if it's tied to all this. And- yeah. I mean, if you're into film noir, LA confidential is a great flick. There's other contemporary ones that are, that are okay. And then, I mean, God, I would just say, you know, get yourself some, um, Turner classic movies channel and, um, Watch some 1940s film noir. There's a ton of them. What I would say about the end of the Brian De Palma film is because it was, they did, they didn't base it on Hodel, Mm. but they based it on like a hybrid of a Hodel-esque and something else. The the end of it is, is clever, but the movie I think was made before... Steve Hodel spoke out oh. about it. So it's really interesting how they ended it because it kind of seems like there's a hybrid piece, even though George was a suspect way back then and they could have been pulling it from there. Right. The ending was decent, but the movie as a whole was like, eh, no, I'm yeah, good. Just didn't succeed for you. Yeah. There's a ton of neo-noir movies that are really great from Chinatown all the way yeah. back into the oh, yeah. double indemnity and in those movies from, which is a whole other subject um, that, <laughs> is pretty great that we could do, we could have a bigger discussion on film noir films at some point. Cause we love the crime. I love the crime dramas. I don't know about you. Yeah. From that time. They're great. Yeah. They're fantastic. And so, um, that's why you- I recommend that book. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, I've seen that book. I, I don't think I've read that book though. So the other one I recommend too is devil in the white city. Oh yes, 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 yes. And that one's all the Chicago stuff, but that's yeah. a good one. It's the world good. fair. Good. So is that that? That's that. That's that. That's what you got to say about the Dahlia. Dahlia is really a. I mean, I hate to say that she's a small part of it because it it was a significant tragedy. Well, it was the thing that was sensationalized, mm-hmm. right? It was you know Elizabeth Short's death was sensationalized for so many reasons, right? It was like the connection to the LAPD and their dysfunction at the time and the myriad of missteps that were made all the way through it and the, the, the leads that weren't followed and, and mm-hmm. all of that and all of the corruption, I think. And then the Hollywood connection. And if you think about it, it's 1947 in the thick of LA and Hollywood making neo-noir films. Yeah. Like, that they were literally living out what they were making movies about every single day. Yeah. And she was exploited and used mm. and objectified. And then because of those roles, she was called a lesbian. She was called a whore. She was called a prostitute all while they were thoroughly enjoying her. 
Yeah. It's, I wish they would make a really great movie. Yeah. And more specifically on what we know about her and giving her a little bit more justice because Mm -hmm. the movie really shows that the way that it's made. And I think it's because of the way the case is talked about is it's, it's, I would be insulted if I was a family member, the way that she's depicted. And I know some of that's intentional to show the time and all of that, but she's really an object in the film and it it really is about her murder, but it's not. It should really be about the family. You could, you could really make a human story about the family dynamic that was happening before she came out here Mm -hmm. and all of her, you could, you could project all kinds of aspirations onto her and all those things because there are accounts of what she had told friends and what she had told this friend that she went to live with. And there was some guy named red that she was dating supposedly. Mm -hmm. And then there were a couple of women that she was supposedly dating. And, um, so like, there's a lot there that you could make into a really human story. Mm -hmm. And then also just as a writer, just decide who you're deciding it murdered her. Like if it was Kathy writing the script, she would decide that it was this guy Hodel, and, um, and yeah, make a really great crime drama, Mm -hmm. but no, No, it has not been. So uh, for those of you aspiring screenwriters out there, please make a great Black Dahlia murder. I mean, make a Blake, (laughs) make a great Black Dahlia murder film. It's a lot of words because that would it's an extremely interesting story with a lot of it really is. And it sounds like what you're saying, too, is that there's a lot of um, there could be a lot of prejudice, dysfunction, criminal issue stuff that we talk a lot about on this show. There could be a lot of meat for that. Oh, so, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. Please check out our Patreon page, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'd love to engage with you as part of our community. Please take a moment to leave us a comment on any of our social media. Thank you so much for listening. And once again, sleep safe.